All right. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Um, it's also a chapter where I've been in studies in the past where I would read this chapter while just reading through Hebrews. There's one particular study where a brother and I were reading this together, and we were just reading it over and over again. We were just trying to understand what we were reading and um, just really get it into our minds. And um, we would read through the whole book, and then we would read another chapter, read the whole book, read another chapter. And when we did that with chapter 7, we read through the whole chapter, and we both looked at each other. And I think he asked me first, he said, did you understand what we just read? And I went, no. Did you? And he said, no. So we decided we were going to read and talk about Hebrews chapter 7 until we felt like we had a grasp on some level of what was going on. And that discussion um, changed my understanding of Scripture and opened up just my understanding of, of God and just the coherency of Scripture. So I hope that this afternoon, the way that I work through the text here can maybe help to bring some coherency to what can sometimes be a strange uh, a strange chapter where it's kind of difficult to understand why the points are being made or why these things are even here. I think understanding maybe as we look back a little bit on Hebrews as a whole, just kind of an illustration to understand why this chapter and why this letter is so important. Um, unfortunately, something that's very common in the world is domestic violence. And sometimes uh, spouses will be so violent with each other that eventually the police are called on them because of neighbors hearing what's going on, or maybe eventually one of the spouses themselves, they call the police because of the abuse. And once they finally get caught, I mean, it's, it's over, right? Uh, there's there's going to be jail time for something like that. And in chapter 6, the Hebrew writer was telling the Hebrew Christians, who had been Christians for a long time, that the direction that they're going in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6, the direction that they're going is they don't seem to realize that decisions that they're making are putting them into a position where they are crucifying again and putting to open shame Jesus Christ. The idea is if somebody is like active in abusing their spouse, whether it's a wife to her husband or a husband to his wife, if he's become like a custom or she's been accustomed to doing that habitually in the privacy of their home, how do you get somebody like that? to actually like stop and not only change what they're doing, but like respect their spouse, right? The big thing is they have to change their perspective. They've got to change their perspective. And so often what happens in the process of growing in our faith and as we're confronted with different temptations or trials, sometimes we can be so cut off guard both individually, but sometimes congregationally, where we don't realize the effect that we're having on Christ as the source of our faith, right? And that the, the necessity is understanding how we can get ourselves back into the right frame of mind. And just as the Hebrew writer said in chapter 4, just like somebody getting caught by the police when they're abusing their spouse, ultimately the Hebrew writer is exhorting the Christians here, even if they don't see what's going on in the right perspective, God sees what's going on. Hebrews chapter 4 mentions all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So what he's telling them is God will see and will take into account the condition that they're putting themselves in. And if they choose to continue in that direction without concern, there is no mercy, but instead a fiery expectation of judgment is what he'll get into in chapter 10. So the reason I say all of these things 
Chapter 7 is not meant to just be a nice Bible connection. Like a really cool, like, wow, look at how the Bible just fits from over here and matches over here and, you know, just has kind of a, a neat thing in the moment that doesn't really produce anything outside of the discovery of that connection. Hebrews chapter 7 and dealing with Melchizedek, a promise made in the Psalms, and how Jesus fulfilled all those things is meant to change our perspective permanently. And it's meant to cultivate with us, within us a greater respect for God's grace, a greater respect for the suffering of Jesus, a greater respect for the faithfulness of God in ways that inspire us to be more faithful ourselves to God, much like we talked about in Nehemiah chapter 9. The way I've chosen to title the lesson is Made Perfect to Make Perfect. The idea is Jesus was made perfect himself in ways of necessity then to fulfill our need to be made perfect as well. Go back to Genesis chapter 14. I want to go back to the source of where the, really the seed of the things that are going to be talked about in Hebrews 7 come from. There's like this incredibly short little event in Genesis 14 that the Hebrew writer is basically like making this whole chapter draw from in chapter 7. That the entire chapter, all of the points he's making, it's all based in Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. And again, I just really think this is one of the most extraordinary things that in the New Testament is reflected from the Old in terms of connections um, made uh, of Jesus with how Jesus related to Old Testament um, events and prophecy. Genesis 14, 18, 18 through 20. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He, and that is Melchizedek, blessed him, that is Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. So that's it. Uh, that's the only thing said about Melchizedek until Psalm 110, verse 4, where the psalmist, after the giving of the law, uh, mentions of the Christ that he would be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And the Hebrew writer will quote that. Um, so turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. We won't turn to the psalm because that's quoted immediately in the context we'll be reading from. But what I want you to like look at on the board and just notice is that there's a way that Abraham and Melchizedek interacted with each other and it's important to take note of these interactions because what the Hebrew writer will say, the points he'll make, is that Melchizedek and what he did for Abraham and what Abraham did for Melchizedek actually connect together to reveal basically every quality of what the New Testament is. Every quality of the New Covenant and even the strength and power of the Old Covenant in contrast to the weakness of the law. And in fact, this interaction actually shows where the Old Testament got its power from. Why God could justify extending mercy through Christ even back in the time of the law. So we're going to see how Melchizedek and Abraham and, and just this, this interaction is contrasted to the law but ultimately, based on this oath God made in Psalm 110, verse 4, how the Messiah fulfilled the, the weaknesses and the nature of the law while fulfilling the nature of Melchizedek, while fulfilling the nature of Abraham and his faith, while fulfilling everything in Genesis 14. It's just, it's, it's very mind-blowing if we're able to just make the, make the connection. So I'm going to try to chart this out. I've tried to make this very simple. But really, just like Hebrews is making comparisons to show the superiority of Jesus in practical and digestible ways, what the Hebrew writer is doing in a very basic way 
is he is comparing Melchizedek, who was a figure of Jesus' priesthood, to the Levitical priests of the law, comparing them to ultimately make a, a, a climactic comparison then to Jesus himself, who gains glory from the comparison not only with Melchizedek, but also the Levitical priest. That's ultimately the simplicity of what the Hebrew writer is doing. We're just going to follow this almost like topically. So let's read Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to read all the way through. And we're not going to tackle it in order of the text, but we're going to start with the Levitical priests and the law. Start with what the Hebrew writer says about that. Go to Melchizedek and notice the contrast made with Melchizedek and then work our way to Jesus. That's how we're going to try to uh, tackle the text. So chapter 7, just going to read through the whole, whole chapter, all 28 verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Notice, by the way, just really quick, verse 4, related back to verse 2, that kind of like there's this big deal that's being made about this one single tithe Abraham chose to give to Melchizedek. This section, verse 4 through 10, is just going to continue to make that point, and we'll, we'll try to make sense of that later in the lesson, but just take note of that. Verse 5, And those indeed of the sons of Levi who receive the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek made him, or when Melchizedek met him. And everybody understood that really well, right? Like all those points being made. Um, again, we'll try to make sense of that when, when we're further in the lesson. Verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, and here's that quote from Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope, through which we draw near to God. And although it, it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, and this is a longer quotation of Psalm 110 than any other place in Hebrews, 
Notice the phrase here, and this is really important for the emphasis that the Hebrew writer is making on God's unchanging purpose and faithfulness. Notice, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able, to, able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. That's kind of where we get the title of this section here. Jesus was made perfect to make perfect. And that's going to be the point that the Hebrew writer in chapter 8, 9, and 10, that's the implication that he's going to be making from this, is we can be made perfect. We can be perfected. We are perfected through the perfection of Jesus. So what I would like to do first is with looking at the law and the Levitical priests, what the Hebrew writer specifically focuses on In the purpose of being able to be made perfect, the law was weak. And it's not that the law was not perfect on its own right. It's that inherently, just by nature of what the law was, being just that, just a law. That's all it was. It was a law of commandments contained in ordinances. And really even a law based on fleshly, earthly ordinance, right? Just by nature, there are certain inherent weaknesses in that. So it's not that the law was bad. It's not that the law didn't fulfill its specific purpose. It's just that for the purpose the Hebrew writer is considering, the ultimate purpose of really fulfilling this need that we have, the law was useless to fulfill that purpose. So what's the evidence? It's the priesthood and the weaknesses within the priesthood. One of the concluding points we'll make is that ultimately what Hebrews 7 teaches us is the power of the covenant is reflected in the power of the priesthood the nature of the covenant is reflected in the nature of the priesthood. So what are things that are said about the priests? One thing in verse 28 is the priests are people who are of the flesh. They're people who are working and fulfilling physical ordinances. Chapter 9, we'll pick up on that in verse 2, and verse 1 and verse 2, that the priests being of the flesh and being earthly, were serving an earthly tabernacle and an earthly temple, with earthly purifications, in an earthly kingdom, with an earthly king. So everything of the priest was almost like inherently sharing the weaknesses of its earthly nature. And because of that, in verse 19, the law could make nothing perfect. That's one of the main points in verse 19. The law on its own merit could make nothing perfect. Uh, The law was also not by oath, well, the priesthood in the law, in verse uh, 21, The priests were not qualified by oath, but rather by birth. So you remember the priests came from a very specific tribe, tribe of Levi, and kings came from a specific tribe, the tribe of Judah. You notice in verse 14, that's a point that he makes about Jesus, that Jesus did not come from Levi, 
So in terms of fulfilling a priesthood, actually it literally wasn't possible for Jesus to inherit the Levitical priesthood just by nature of the fact that he wasn't born from Levi. So they were appointed by birth and by inheritance, qualified by their tribe. Look back at verse uh, 23. This is actually another problem. And one of the things is without Jesus, weakness and need is not fully known, right? So these are inherent weaknesses that should have been observably obvious to the people of the law. But one of the weaknesses of the law and the priesthood was that there were many, lots of priests. And in fact, there's new priests all the time because the priests who were serving before, well, they're dead. So now a new priest has to take his office. So you have like this inherent sense of unreliability and instability and the fact that there's just constantly new priests and, and new men, and they're prevented by death, and there's so many, again, because the, the, the priesthood is not solving the problem of death. It's simply almost like working with the hemorrhaging nature of the problem rather than solving it. The daily sacrifices. Look back at verse 27. This is another problem. When you read the Old Testament, it's almost like, again, without Jesus, we don't understand just how serious the, the, the testimony of the law is in terms of showing the problem and our need for more. Daily sacrifices. Same sacrifices again and again, never stopping. The priests were making sacrifices even for their own sins and then for the people's sins. The Day of Atonement comes every single year if they're even keeping the Day of Atonement at all. And just this constantly repeating process that's meant to testify that the ultimate problem of sin and death is not being solved by the law on its own. What chapters 8, 9, and 10 will get into, and what chapter 7 is going to allude to, is that the power that was given by God to the people within the law was not based in the law, but based in Jesus' connection by faith to those who were within the law. We'll see that more as uh, the lesson goes on. But ultimately, in verse 28, the people who served as priests were themselves weak. They had an incapability to serve God's ultimate purpose. And Jesus, ultimately, in verse 28, is the only one who ultimately could serve that purpose. So the priesthood and the weakness, the insufficiency of the priesthood, reflected the insufficiency of the law, which was not meant to just doom the people of the law, but help them to humble themselves to recognize that they needed a mercy and they needed a power that the law on its own could not and did not provide. It's a beautiful system meant to draw people to look to God. It's a beautiful system that's actually meant to help people to recognize the weakness and problem of the flesh and to recognize that nothing on earth is capable of fulfilling that need. So, Melchizedek, in contrast to all this, we're just kind of putting the pieces in place for now, kind of like setting up chess pieces. So you have the law, you've got the insufficiency of the Levitical priests, and then you have Melchizedek, who was just a figure of this priest that Jesus would eventually become. Go back to verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. In contrast to this, what are some things about Melchizedek that serve as qualifications or aspects of what made him distinct from the priesthood in the law? Well, one is just kind of in, in the chart. He wasn't even within the context of the law. Melchizedek was not even a descendant of Abraham, right? So not only was Melchizedek not a Levite, 
He also was not even a descendant of Abraham. He literally existed outside of the entire context of the law and everything within it. And as a priest, he was also a king, being a singular person. He was serving God as a king and priest, which is very distinct. And if you look in verse uh, 2, it mentions that he was first of all by the translation of his name, that is Melchizedek, just his name. His name means king of righteousness. And the idea is that's actually a part of how you inherit this priesthood. It's actually a qualification within the narrative. Is whoever fulfills this priesthood would, would need to be the king of righteousness. It mentions also in verse 2, king of peace. That whoever this person would be to inherit this priesthood would also need to meet that qualification. He would need to be the king of peace. Big thing that the priests were meant to do was to provide gifts of atonement and blood to make peace, ultimately not between just man to man, and reconciliation between men, but ultimately to make peace between man and God. And so whoever this person would be, somehow this would need to be somebody who is a king of peace in that way as a priest. And we'll see more about how that became possible. Mentions also in verse 3 that Melchizedek had no genealogy, neither beginning of days nor end of life. So whoever inherits this priesthood needs to be able to have an existence that extends back further than human existence. And that seems pretty impossible, right? Not only that, but in verse 3 at the end of the verse, that this whoever inherits this priesthood needs to be somebody who remains a priest perpetually because we don't see Melchizedek's priesthood ever ending. I don't think it's the idea that Melchizedek was himself like Jesus, but just that the, the careful way that this narrative takes place the missing pieces along with what's actually written, all of it is used by God to testify to these things so perfectly that exactly as it's written, it leaves all the room, all the room that's necessary to perfectly connect with Jesus Christ. So with that piece in place, um, just this idea of the tithe here and the, the oath. So the idea, I think, with Hebrews chapter 7, is that the power to, make, to be made perfect, uh, perpetual life, eternal life, all life, and all of these things that uh, the law would testify to, ultimately were not contained within the power that the law had on its own, but rather that all of these things existed outside of the boundaries of the law alone. And Melchizedek's priesthood testifies to this fact along with Abraham and their interaction. So let's look at verses 4 through 10 again. So I think like there's some things that are said about this tithe worth taking note of here that I, I think the Hebrew writer is intending to connect to this point. We'll read this again. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. So to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father Melchizedek when he met him. So just kind of think about what the tithe was for a minute. Why were the Levites commanded to receive tithes from their brethren? 
What was the reason for that? What was the role of the priests? And, and why were the people giving a tithe to the priests? The role of the priests was to make atonement for the people. The priests' lives were to be fully dedicated to that work. The only way that they could be fully dedicated to that work was if their brethren acknowledged their need for that work in extending fellowship between them and the priests willfully by paying the tithe. So I think the most basic principle of the tithe is it's a way of having fellowship with the one who's responsible for the work of atonement. So how many tithes would the priests receive in the law? Well, they would receive, would receive constant tithes. They would really never ending because the work never stops. It's not like there's just one sacrifice. I mean, once you make one sacrifice, the next one, if there's a line of people all waiting to get forgiveness of their sins with the sacrifices, well, you're just going to have to keep on going, right? So the tithing really was never supposed to stop. You remember Hebrews, not Hebrews, Nehemiah, chapter 10. Part of that document that they were agreeing to write, the part of it was they were not going to neglect the tithe so that the priests could perform their work. They recognized their need for that work because they recognized their need for God's mercy, right? So they were making sure that they could have fellowship with the Levites doing and performing the work of atonement. But the tithing being constant is reflected in the fact that the sacrifices were constant. How many tithes did Abraham pay? Just one. And who through Abraham paid a tithe through Abraham to Melchizedek? Think if we can establish that tithing in some base principle was a way of having fellowship with the one making atonement for you, then it's, it's as if, in a sense, again, just like Melchizedek was not himself Jesus, not himself in the priesthood of Jesus, but all of these things just typifying these greater truths, that the Levites and the system within the law that made atonement Because Levi, through Abraham, connected to Jesus through that tithe by Melchizedek, then the Levitical system, not by right of law, but based on the oath after the law, is able then to connect through Melchizedek to Jesus. I know that just, like, I don't know, it sounds crazy and confusing, but it it really is very simple. It's basically just that God worked out a way to testify to the fact that before the law with Melchizedek and Abraham meeting and after the law with Jesus raising from the dead, God was simply able to testify that he had a permanent faithful plan that he was able to fulfill and demonstrate in ways nobody could have anticipated. And God was able to bring value to the Levitical priesthood in a way nobody could have anticipated to reveal that justification for atonement has always been based on Jesus outside of any physical system, outside of anything based on man or the merits of man. So a couple of things by that. I'll suggest to you that a part of the single tithe shows that there would only be one sacrifice that would be made to not only fulfill the Melchizedek priesthood, but to bring value ultimately into the system of the law. Look at verse 28. Notice it says, The law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Um, I'm sorry, verse 27 is is what I meant. Uh, When it mentions that the 
uh, that Jesus does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. This idea of one sacrifice is uh, emphasized consistently um, from this point forward. I'd like to show you how important this is. This idea of one sacrifice for all. Look at chapter 9, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 12. It says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. Look at verse 26 of the same chapter. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And verse 27, the following verse, As much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. Go to chapter 10 and look at verse 2. Again, this is just a continual emphasized point. And the points the Hebrew writer is making about this tithe and Melchizedek is again showing that it was always God's intention that all justification would always be based in this one sacrifice that Jesus would make and not the many insufficient sacrifices that the law provided. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. Look at verse 10, same chapter. Um, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Same chapter, we're going to read through verse 14. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So again, the Hebrew writer is just introducing the importance that it's always been based in one sacrifice. Justification was never based in the multitude of the offerings and the multitude of the priests that were within the context of the law, but always based in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ being extended to all people for all time through faith. And that without faith, even the people within the law, if they were to offer an animal and assume the animal in its own right and the blood in its own right is bringing me atonement, would they receive forgiveness without faith? No. Without faith, there is no atonement. Even the psalmist's in the context of the law, would recognize animal offerings ultimately mean nothing to God. It's always been based in the one sacrifice that would be made for all time. There's a very important point um, conclusively we'll get to based on that. So, Jesus came from Judah. Inherently, then, he's qualified to be a king. He's from David. So, of the flesh, he's qualified to be a king, but not qualified to be an earthly priest. But to be qualified for Melchizedek's priesthood, to be king of peace, there would need to be some kind of offering, some kind of gift that can be given to not only bring atonement for himself, but for the people. So in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 3, this is the, the implied point, the necessary inference he's going to make from this point in chapter 8, verse 3. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest has something to offer. 
How did Jesus, being qualified as a king, qualify also to inherit this priesthood as king of peace? What gifts did Melchizedek give to Abram here? What gifts? Two things. Melchizedek, as gifts, gave bread and wine. Two things. The Hebrew writer in chapter 9 is going to get into the implication of the importance of Jesus offering his blood one time for all time for all people to make atonement for sins. Chapter 10 is going to make the point that Jesus' body was an offering to make atonement one time for all people for sin. Just as Melchizedek offered bread and wine, Jesus more perfectly offers his body and his blood. So how does Jesus qualify as king? He fulfills everything involved in the Davidic kingdom in righteousness and justice. He never sins or falls short. But because he has not sinned, earlier in the book of Hebrews, Jesus then is able to fulfill the weaknesses of the flesh, which would be testified to within the Levitical system, and fulfilling those weaknesses through suffering and not through sin, he is able then to make perfect peace and to inherit a greater priesthood that God had foreordained and foreshadowed before the law ever came into existence. So he died in weakness and perfection, fulfilling both the law, the curse within the law, the Levitical weaknesses. He's resurrected. He's qualified to fit into Melchizedek's priesthood. The idea is, Everything about Abraham and Melchizedek's interaction, those three verses, just people making choices. There's no like parentheses within the context that says, hey, pay attention. Like this is all going to be really important one day. It's just, it just happens and it's quick. The, the narrative moves on. But everything that happens, every detail, even what's not said about their interactions, or where did Melchizedek come from? Where did he go? Every detail is foreshadowing all the components of the new covenant that Jesus would come to fulfill. It is mind-boggling. So there's more to say about that. Um, some of you have heard me talk about like a Melchizedek chart. This is like half of it. Um, but it, it's one of my favorite things. And if, if this seems confusing, um, it's one of those things that, that when you reread chapter 7 and the more that you, know, you just kind of let the, the, the points sink in more and more, it really is just astonishing and humbling. So some implications to make that we'll get into in a second. But just again, everything within the law only had value because of this oath that God gave outside of the law, the priesthood that existed outside of the law, all coming together by Abraham being the man of God's promise, a man who is known by his faith, trusting in God's oaths, meeting Melchizedek, Melchizedek blessing him, Abram paying him a tithe, and Melchizedek giving him bread and wine. Every detail foreshadows all the components. One more thing before I forget. The priest that mentions in chapter 7, verse 5, uh, the priests and the people had commandments to receive tithes. Psalm 110 mentions your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Abram was not under commanded obligation. He gave of his will. He volunteered the tithe. Just like another detail to where the people, we connect with Jesus as one sacrifice voluntarily. We see what God has done. We volunteer ourselves, not just by commandment, but because of the day of his power and the victory that's been gained. All right. I'd love to talk more about that if anyone has questions about it. So one thing really quick. 
One of the main principles, the nature and power of the covenant is reflected in the priesthood. Look back in uh, chapter 7, verse 12. When the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a, a, a change of law also. Did you know that our law is not just a change of practice? I think sometimes there can be the idea that really what separates the new covenant from the old covenant is really just we, we practice things differently. You know, we don't meet at a temple anymore. Now we sing with songs, without instruments. We don't make animal sacrifices. Jesus is our sacrifice. So because of all this stuff Jesus has done, we just, we practice things differently. You know, and we're just, we're doing things without so much of a physical emphasis now. That's not it. The Hebrew writer is trying to emphasize it's not just that the practices have changed. It's the availability of power that has changed. It's not just that the, the people in the law could have faith. It's that our obligation now, because of the superiority of the power we now have access to, there is now the obligation that we must live up to to demonstrate the power of the new covenant by living in righteousness and holiness in ways that also as priests of the new covenant reflect that power. Think about the sacrifices being incapable of taking care of the problem of sin. You know, the people are just suffering with the same problems. We looked at Nehemiah 9. It's just the same thing over and over again. It's a cycle that's always repeating itself. You think about that in contrast, all of that. In contrast to somebody like the Apostle Paul. When you read about the Apostle Paul, you're reading about somebody that proves the power of Jesus' priesthood. That Jesus' priesthood is not just about a change of ordinance and practice, it is a change in power. And I'm sure you've noticed as you've read the New Testament how much God's power is emphasized in the New Testament because it's all relying on this principle. The power of the New Covenant is distinctly greater than any power the law on its own had to make perfect. Next point. God works it and uses things that will not seem clearly connected to Jesus to draw us into his glory. Nobody, I think, understood ever that Melchizedek and Abram, that that little three-verse meeting somehow contained all of these connecting points to Jesus and his glory. And that's just not about Bible connections. I think that is about Bible connections. That I can read my Bible and I can understand that as I'm reading, there's such glory and depth that's hidden within the words of Scripture. And it's, it's not that me not understanding means that the Bible is too complicated or that things um, in the Bible are, are imperfect while I'm the one who's smart and it's the Bible that, that's dumb. The idea is the Bible is smarter than me. God's word is smarter than me. It's that there are so many amazing points held within Scripture. I just have to respect how everything is so threaded into Jesus. But I think this has a point to the Hebrew audience and to us. The Hebrew audience had at one point chosen to suffer by faith and continue to draw near to God. That time in this context was over. Now they were drifting. And what they had to learn is even the things in our life that we don't realize can have any connection to Jesus are actually the things that we may not understand God can connect to his glory. Imagine in judgment. What if God were to open like a little screen when we're in judgment and show us all the ways he was using our circumstances to perfect us and glorify us? Do you think you might be surprised at the little things that he used that you never even thought about? I think that's the point is God used Melchizedek and Abraham meeting when it it's not even noticeable. It's like this fast event. But that's how God works is, is everything 
Everything can be used to connect to Jesus' glory, even our weaknesses, the things that we are overlooking in our lives. And finally, I think this is the big thing. It's not a system that brings us close to God. It's a person. It's the faith of Romans chapter 4. When I used to go um, door knocking in Minnesota, it was with, with that brother I mentioned who had been divorced and just really dedicated all this time to God. He just went door knocking all the time, so he would invite me to go with him. And I noticed that when we would go door knocking, when we would ask people if they wanted to read the Bible with us, they would say, oh, I go to church. It was like, okay. I mean, what does that mean? Are you saying you're justified because you go to church? Are you saying you don't need to read the Bible? Like, what? I don't, I'm not sure what you're saying. And oftentimes what that exposes is this person, what they believe is, I have my system, so I'm okay. You go on to the next person, I've got my system. They are no different than anyone within the law who assumed that because they were a part of this system, they were good. No, the Pharisees relied on their system, not the person of God. Everything within the system is meant to bring us closer to God. That's why Hebrews has ten chapters of Jesus and his glory before he gets into the more practical applications. Because what the Hebrew writer is trying to convey, it's not just the system and the application, it's Jesus. And unless we see him appropriately, then nothing else we do is going to matter. Because we're justified not by system, but by person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Notice that at the end of the chapter, that's the climax in verse 23 through 28. We've always needed a person, not animals. We've always needed a person who was a king who could approach God directly as the high priest went into the most holy place to the throne of God, in a sense. We've always needed someone to go there for us and to bring blood, not the blood of animals, but his own blood, to make atonement for us so that we can be close to God. That is the only person who is capable of filling the depth of our need, and that person is Jesus Christ. So with that, we'll conclude the lesson. There's any who are here who need to bring anything forward. Uh, let's, let's praise and know God as he is in all his glory. Let's prove the power of the covenant by living lives that are worthy of God's glory in these things. If there's anything we can do, come and bring it forward. We stand inside.